Glad each of you is here this morning. Uh, my name is Dan Shusek. I've been a part of Community Bible Church here for over 10 years. Um, it's my privilege to welcome you, uh, each of you here this morning, to your Community Bible Church. Um, and by way of, of uh, thinking about why we're here today, I just want to give a little, uh, a little story, a story that's by choice. We all fall short of God's glory. When we confess... During confession, we are worshiping God by acknowledging our sin, and we're acknowledging God's faithfulness to forgive us, even while claiming the promise that we are already forgiven. Let's take a moment now, in just a moment of silent prayer, to quietly in our own hearts and our own minds confess our our sins to God and to thank God for his forgiveness of those sins in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts. Cleanse us from all our offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires, that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, in finding in you our refuge and strength through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. In a moment, Chris will bring us this morning's message uh, as he preaches God's word to us. Before he does, let me invite you to follow along as we read from our scripture that, his, uh, that Chris' teaching will be based on this morning. This is in Exodus 19. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. That's the reading of the Lord's word today. Before we invite Chris up, let's just pray and ask that our hearts would be ready to hear his message this morning. Lord, we lift your servant Chris up to you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would bless his time of preparation as he teaches us this morning from your word. Lord, give him clarity of of words and and conveying his, his understanding and teaching that you want us to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that we would also be encouragement to him as we faithfully listen to what he's sharing with us this morning. Lord, we want to worship you through this time of studying your word now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's always good to be here. So, here we are again. I always look forward to being here with you. So, welcome. We are continuing our series in Exodus. This is our second series this academic year. The first series that we did in the fall uh, talked about how God saved the Israelites from being enslaved in Egypt. And God led them out of Egypt. But instead of going straight to the promised land, the people found themselves in the wilderness. And I think that sometimes it's easy to read the word wilderness and not really know what the wilderness and the Sinai desert is like. Uh, My brother and I took a trip there a number of years ago. And it is completely void of everything except for rocks and sand. I don't think I saw a bush or a bird or it was just nothing. Rocks, mountains, sand. And the Israelites find themselves here in the rocks, in the sand. And we read that God is doing this to teach the people how he's going to provide for them. God is doing this to teach the people that they can depend on him. So there's three things from the reading today that I'd like for you to take home with you. The first is that we are God's treasured possession. The second is that each of us are destined to be priests. And the third is how we can approach God. So God's treasured possession, each of us destined to be priests, and how we can approach God. Let's pray. God, I need you now. We need you. God, open our ears and our hearts so that our lives can be changed, 
so that we can be a blessing to others. God, give us understanding and wisdom. Give us a desire to love and serve you. Give us a desire to love and serve each other. In your name I would pray. Amen. So verses 5 and 6 tell us, I'm going to read from my version here. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep our promise, the Bible uses the word covenant. I've changed this here to our promise. If you will carefully listen to me and keep our promise, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So this thought that we or the Israelites could be God's treasured possession seems unimaginable to me for a couple of reasons. The first is that, and as we've been reading, the Israelites were really mediocre subjects on their best day, and they definitely didn't deserve it. They're constantly grumbling against God. As a matter of fact, we read in Exodus chapter 1 that we find them enslaved and oppressed, and they're crying out for God to save them. And God did that. God showed his power to Pharaoh. And after some really hard lessons for the Egyptians, finally, Pharaoh told the people, get out of here and go. And God saves them in this way. And we picked up the story a few weeks ago. So they left Egypt and they're out in the desert. And as Greg uh, preached on, they're out in the desert and they don't have any water. And they're just complaining. God, how come there's no water? As it turns out, in almost every chapter that the Israelites are mentioned, they're grumbling about something. So this is the 19th chapter, and the following chapters start or have in it the people are grumbling to God. Chapters 2, 5, 6, 15, 16, and 17. Now, chapter 1 is like the introduction, so we've not fully been introduced to them yet, so we'll just put that one to the side. And you might say, like, well, in chapters 7 to 14, they were doing pretty well. But that part of the story is actually specifically about uh, Moses, Pharaoh, and God. And the Israelites aren't actually mentioned a whole lot in that middle section. So if we're reading the word Israelite in this book, it's also talking about them grumbling and complaining, which they just really never stopped doing through the uh, the entire book. So they're constantly grumbling about God. They're constantly questioning God's goodness and what he provides for them. Tyler spoke two weeks ago about how they thought they were going to starve. And God miraculously provides food for them. And God said, but just do this one thing. Don't hoard it. Take enough to get you through today, and tomorrow I'll provide more. But what did they do? They hoarded it because they didn't believe that God's goodness, that he miraculously provided today, they didn't trust him to miraculously provide it tomorrow. And at several points, they actually long to go back to the physical slavery in Egypt, which they're only like three months out of Egypt. So it wasn't that long ago that they were there. But they said on several uh, on several occasions, oh, if we could only go back to the delicious meat pots that were in Egypt, or if we could only go back to the places where we were before. But instead, Moses, instead, God, you've brought us out here to die. Have you ever brought your kids somewhere where they've really wanted to go for a long time? Just, they won't stop talking about it? My wife and I bought our our kids to Disney World a few years ago, and they were so super excited to go. They were at that age where everything was still sort of magical. As a matter of fact, 
it's magic was a common answer that I gave to my children when they asked how something worked and they believed that. So we bring our kids to Disney World, you know, which like costs half of a house these days. And we're there in the first day. My daughter's like, Dad, it's so hot. I'm like, well, yeah, but we are in Disney World. And like an hour later, Ben's like, Dad, I've taken so many steps today. I just, I just want to go back to our hotel. I'm like, no, no, that was the inexpensive part of this trip. The expensive part was you seeing the princesses, so just enjoy it. And then a little while later, Simon said, Dad, this isn't fun anymore. We were on day one of our seven-day trip. The Israelites telling Moses, that they wish they could be back in Egypt is like a thousand times worse than that. Imagine telling the person who saved you, the telling the God who saved you, did you just bring us out here to die? If only we were back where we were complaining to you a little while ago before. So we can see here that the people have not done anything to deserve God's love. And ultimately, I think that we're the same. So imagine if all of us were built out of Lego pieces. And you could build your own set of friends and family. And I mean, you have like the unlimited choices of Lego heads and torsos and legs and hats and hands and accessories to build the perfect person. Would you build a duplicate of yourself to be your best friend? Or do we all, uh, let me just, maybe I didn't say that right. If you could build the perfect parent, if you could build the perfect spouse or perfect child or perfect best friend, would you duplicate yourself? So I know that there's a lot of things about me that I would not build into the perfect anyone. And I see a lot of your heads nodding in agreement uh, as to why you would not build somebody just like me. And my wife and daughter, as they were subjected to this sermon yesterday, wanted me to let you know that they agree. (laughs) But my guess is that none of us would build ourselves as the perfect friend or spouse or child. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we hurt others. We know that we're disingenuous. We know that we're selfish. Let me put this a different way with a quick math lesson. So if I'm standing on a line that goes infinitely in this direction, all right, standing here goes on forever, and I move 100 miles in that direction, how far am I from the end? The question is, or the answer is infinite. Well, I'm still infinitely away from that end. It doesn't matter that I moved 100 miles. As a matter of fact, one might argue that I am just as infinitely far away as the person who hasn't moved at all. Because as a distance, I'm still infinitely away. I think that God's perfection is like this. We are infinitely far away from being good enough to deserve God's love. And it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how far you've traveled. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done. You are still, we are still infinitely away 
from God's perfection. But here's the good news. God actually thinks of us, of you, as his treasured possession. It doesn't matter that we don't deserve it. It doesn't matter that we are infinitely far away from deserving it. God tells us that we are his treasured possession. And there is no amount of brokenness that Jesus' sacrifice can't cover. There is nothing in your past that could keep God from loving you. And as I look around this room, I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of your stories, and I know that at times we all struggle to think that this is true. Why would God love me? No matter what your opinion is of yourself, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So first, we are God's treasured possessions, and that is remarkable because we don't deserve it. And being God's treasured possession is remarkable because being God's treasured possession is a really big deal. It seems unimaginable to me that the God who created the universe values us this much. So what does it mean to be God's treasured possession? So take a second and think of that person in your life that you treasure the most. I think the closest thing that I can come up with uh, to imagining what this means is to think of my children. And I think the same could be said for spousal and sibling relationships or parent-child relationships. You know, I adore and love my wife, Lori, dearly. But the reason I say my children is because I'm responsible for them in a way that I'm not for my wife. From day one, every step of their lives, I've cared for them, and I always will. And there's no sacrifice that I wouldn't make for my Simon, Ben, or Talia, even when they're at their worst which is far worse than their innocent, smiling faces show all of you on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter. I'm all in with them. So whichever relationship in your life is the most important to you, ask yourself these two questions. What wouldn't you do for them? And how would you want them to be cared for if you couldn't? So imagine that you're the sole caregiver for this person. Imagine that maybe they have some sort of disability. Or maybe they're so young that they can't take care of themselves. And that without you, they wouldn't, they'd be utterly alone and that they would not be able to help themselves. Eventually they would die of starvation or neglect without you. What wouldn't we do? What wouldn't we give to keep this from happening? And then imagine you get that scary diagnosis, cancer or some sort of incurable disease, and you have six months to live. In six months, that person that you love the most is going to be alone, and they're unable to care for themselves. What wouldn't you give to know that they were cared for after you were gone? To know that someone was going to love them the way that you loved them. To know that somebody else was going to treat them like their parent or their child or their spouse. This is the closest analogy that I can think of for how much God loves us. We are God's children. What wouldn't he do to keep us? What sacrifice would he not make? The Bible tells us nothing. 
He'd literally give everything. Literally give his life and pay an infinite cost to care for you. Nothing you can do can break God from thinking about you in this way. Ephesians tells us that God has adopted us into his family as sons and daughters. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And if God loves the world this much, right? John 3.16, the most popular NFL verse ever, says, For God so loved the world. If God loves every person on earth this much, if truly we are God's treasured possession, then that means that we need to treat each other as God's treasured possessions. How can we do anything other than love what God loves? We can't. There's nothing else that we can do. We love and treasure what God loves and treasures. This means that there's no room for racism or sexism or dishonesty or anything that keeps us from demonstrating God's love to others. It doesn't matter what country people come from. It doesn't matter what their level of education or wealth or their level of input into society is. If God loves them infinitely, how can we do anything else? Now, I doubt there's anybody sitting in this audience here today who's like, nah, I'm going to despise what God loves. Right? That's not the way we think. But my question is, do our actions match up to what we profess? You know, think of somebody that you don't like. And I know you can. I can. Because all of us have people in our lives that we think less of. And I want us to consider, how do we think about them? How do we think about people who are over there? People who are not part of our group. People who are not like us. You know, what are we like, not only in front of them, but when they're not around? Do we support policies that help the people over there or policies that hurt them? Am I really upholding the image of God in them? This is what it means to be God's treasured possession, both for us and how we treat others. So a kingdom of priests. God wants us to be a kingdom of of priests. And let me define this word priest because I think in our 21st century thought it probably means something different than what the author of Exodus meant for it to be. So a priest is somebody who represents God to others, who ministers to others, who proclaims God's truth to others, and is a go-between God and the people. And the author tells us, God says, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Now, I don't know about anyone here, but that mission just seems enormous for anyone. I mean, the whole world? As we've seen in Exodus, the Hebrews could barely take care of themselves. How on earth are they going to be priests to the entire world? And I don't think that they fully understood what that meant in that moment. But what God wanted them to do was bring God's goodness literally to the rest of the world on God's behalf. This was God's design for the Israelites, that they would use their blessings to help those around them, and in so doing, bring others into the kingdom of God. 
Actually, it was about 500 years prior to this that we read about Abraham in Genesis. And here's what God tells Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This was the destiny of the nation of Israel. And this is our destiny too. We, like the Israelites, are charged with restoring the world. And if we can just follow God enough to allow his blessings to flow through us, there's going to be plenty to share with the entire earth. Unfortunately, this is where the Israelites failed. There's some notable exceptions, but for the most part, in practice, the Israelites often exceeded the wickedness of their neighbors. They did things that God despised, like child sacrifice. If we are serious about reclaiming this world, then we need to live lives that can be a blessing to others. And let me just be clear. This is not a requirement for salvation. This is God's plan for the gospel. This is not a requirement for salvation. But it is God's plan of the gospel. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word gospel means good news. And the good news isn't just for us being saved. The good news isn't just us leaving this place and going to heaven. The good news is that we are going to be restored along with the entire world. That's the good news. The entire world is going to be restored. God wants his world back. And we get to be the workers who do it. God wants us to share our lives, not just parts of our life, but our whole lives with those around us. And when we do so, people will be able to see God. Let me explain a little bit more. A friend of mine by the name of Jay Barnes, who's the president of Bethel College, said, Daily decisions determine direction and destiny. Daily decisions determine direction and destiny. So how does this connect? If we want to fulfill our God-given destiny to change this world, we do it one decision at a time. There's no decision that's too small or too big that this is not true for. Our decisions, will our decisions, question, will our decisions bring order to chaos? Or will it perpetuate the brokenness of this world? God calls us to fix the brokenness. Now note that God can redeem anything. So if you're sitting out there today and you've messed up your finances or your marriage or your schooling or your friendships or your family with selfishness or whatever, if you feel like you're headed in the wrong direction, I promise it is not too late to become what God has destined you to be. And the end result of those daily decisions will be more joy for you and more blessing for others. During our annual meeting a few weeks ago, we unveiled the beginnings of our new five-year plan. Our old five-year plan 
is completed and in good form, might I add. Our new five-year plan is before us. The CBC mission is to be the dominant cultural force in our area. We want to, as a group of CBC members, bless others in our area so much that they can't help but see God in our lives and want the same for themselves. We want to have such a positive impact on every square inch, every square inch of our area, that people cannot explain what we're doing except that they see and they know that Jesus is present. The unanswered question, though, is, can we be different from the Israelites, who over a period of centuries could never be faithful? They could never give up their idols. They could never give up their worldly definition of success. They could never be faithful and fully committed to God or their communities. And there were some standouts who did this from time to time. But on the whole, their selfishness and their inability to be fully committed kept them from their destiny to be priests. Church, can we be different? And finally, how we approach God. I'm going to read a few of these verses over again. So starting in verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits around the people. Uh, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And then in the next chapter we read, All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. So all this, quite frankly, sounds terrible, right? God on a mountain, if we get too close, we're going to get shot with arrows. The people are afraid and they trembled and the mountain shook and the top of the mountain was literally on fire because God was there. Sounds like a horrible way to meet God. And listen, it's okay to agree with me. You're not betraying your faith to agree with the Israelites' assessment that this was a scary time. Just about everyone in the Bible, actually, who meets God trembles with fear. But as it turns out, we don't have to meet God this way. The author of Hebrews, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews specifically references this story in Exodus 19. So starting in verse 18 in the book of Hebrews, the author writes, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight of it was so terrifying that Moses says, 
I am trembling with fear. So this is the author writing about what we're talking about today. But the author goes on. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what does this mean? Well, the old deal that God made was with the Israelites is as follows. It's what we've read today. Those, those verses uh, 5 and 6 start with, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of you all nations, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So it's this if-then statement. God says, if you obey me fully, then you will have this blessing. But who can do that? Which of us is that perfect Lego man who can keep up our end of the deal? And the answer is none. No matter how we try to assemble ourselves, no matter what cool helmet or accessory we put on our Lego self, no matter how we try to do good things, none of us can fully uphold our end of that deal. But here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, before Christ, we talked and interacted with God like the people did at the base of Mount Sinai. And there was trembling and the people thought they were going to die. And the deal was one that they couldn't hold up their side. But now, now we can approach God with joy because our perfection is given to us by the death of Jesus Christ. We become perfect when we know that we can never get that way on our own. And we accept that we need Jesus in order to see God. So if you're a Christian and you're struggling to love your neighbor as yourself, Consider how much God has given to love you. Consider what God gave you to make you his treasured possession, because you are his treasured possession. And look for ways that you can share that love with others. And if you aren't a Christian or you're not sure exactly what you believe, consider what a difference it would make in your life if you knew That despite what your Facebook feed says, despite what your parents say, despite what that internal murmur in your heart says, despite all of your self-doubts, consider how your life would be different if you knew that God treasures you. The Bible tells us that you are a treasure worth dying for. You are a treasure worth living for. And when you understand that, it'll change everything. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom. Give us courage. God, may we use those things to be a blessing to others. God, thank you that we could be here today. God, may our lives be changed because of you. May we love you. And may we boldly be loving towards others. God, I would pray for the mission of this church. 
God, may we bring the good news to every square inch of this area. In your name I would pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Go in peace.